Hello and welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep or Mary Pat Campbell, and today I'm talking on waiting on public pensions. I'm going to be doing a little storytelling today, getting back to how I got involved in all this brouhaha over public pensions. So I'm going back to way, way back to 2008. So that's not very long ago for some people, 14 years ago, just to explain how I got involved in the disputes and then getting into blogging because something showed up in my memories on Facebook this week from 2015. On July 9th, 2015, there was a public hearing in Washington, D.C. There's a whole story I'm going to link to my live journal post. And yes, I still have live journal. I don't post on it too often. It's mainly personal posts about my chronic pain situation now. Uh, But in 2015, I took a day trip to Washington, D.C. to watch people give testimony with regards to changing actuarial standards of practice surrounding assumption setting and valuation of pensions in general, though it was really about public pensions. I had submitted a letter uh, for this hearing, but I did not give any uh, public testimony. I'm not a pension actuary myself. My experience has been with life insurance and annuities. And back in 2008, so I'm going to bring it back to 2008. So I got started in the biz, as it were, in 2003, working at TIAA CREF, now branded TIAA, going back to its roots. That's how it started. TIAA got started by Andrew Carnegie when he realized that a lot of professors did not have any retirement funds whatsoever, had no pensions, and a lot of them could not retire at all. So he came up with the idea that what they could do is put away a certain amount of money. So this was a defined contribution plan into essentially deferred annuities at which they would guarantee a certain amount of income at a certain age when they retired. So it's deferred income annuities, essentially. Um, So this became the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association, TIAA. CREF came later on, and I'm not going to tell that story right now. Uh, So that got started, you know, I think in the 19-teens, maybe 1920s by Andrew Carnegie. I came along (laughs) to the TIAA team uh, in the actuarial department in 2003, and I did a variety of things. And one of the things I had done was build spreadsheets that did illustrations and did comparisons of the um, annuities, the retirement annuities, which is the core product of TIAA, which are still the fixed deferred income annuities. There's a certain guaranteed amount, but they have um, fixed interest rates. Now, they may be at the guaranteed amounts. The guaranteed minimum interest rates at the time when I started was 3%, but that that had to be reduced because of low interest rates. In any case, I often had to put up illustrations against alternatives 
for proposals. And in a few cases, there were defined benefit pensions that I had to put it up against. And I noticed there was just no way that a defined contribution with what my assumption sets were with like, say, a 5% interest rate against something that it looked like they were guaranteeing 8% accumulations. What the heck? How could they guarantee such a thing? And then I was starting to learn in public pensions because some of these were essentially public pension plans, uh, public universities. And when I realized that what we were being forced to use, like we couldn't choose higher interest rates because of statutory requirements of what interest rates that we could value the annuities at, but that basically public pensions could choose whatever interest rate they wanted to, to value their promises. Those weren't annuities per se. They were the defined benefit pension promises. Um, I was a bit flummoxed. Well, come 2008, I was working as a side gig in the spring for the infinite actuary doing exam seminars. And so we had an exam seminar. We're at a hotel. We're doing in-person seminars. And so I decided to go find the pension actuaries who were at the exam seminar. So I was an instructor. I was working for the infinite actuary and I went and looked for the pension actuaries, whether or not they were instructors or they were studying for exams, therefore customers of the infinite actuary. So this gives you an idea of the kind of person I am. And I went to ask them about this face to face. Of course, I had been asking online about this at the actual outpost, but I thought I would ask face to face about this situation because I still did not get it. How dare, how dare they? I mean, what the heck? Where did they get off saying that they could value these things, that they could basically guarantee 8% you put in money and we're going to promise 8% accumulation. How could they? There was no instrument out there. It didn't work by financial economics in, in the theory. Okay, there was no 8% risk-free rate. So I found somebody I knew and asked them face-to-face, -face, how could you do this? And the answer to me was that government doesn't go out of business. And I'm like, how could you say that? Do you not know any history? Of course, government goes out of business. Now, what we both meant by this, it's not that, oh, government collapses and blah, blah, blah. What we both meant by this, he meant that, of course, government would be able to scrounge up money some way through a combination of bonds, you know, borrowing money, uh, increasing taxes. It would be able, through its sovereign power, as a state, as a municipality, somehow to get the money to pay for pension benefits. And I'm on the other side saying, no, actually, in public finance, this is actually more likely than not how governments fail is via bad public finance. And it happens quite a bit. Just because it hasn't happened much recently doesn't mean it won't happen. And of course, the way we measure it through funded ratios, we can see it coming from a long way away. This is not a surprise, especially with public pensions. 
this and actuaries are part of this you know we should be measuring these things so this was the, how the dispute got started now this is my part of it there were, of course, were plenty of actuaries, plenty of older actuaries, plenty of older pension actuaries in the field, even public pension actuaries that other public pension actuaries did not want to listen to, who were making this very argument. I was an outsider. They did not need my help. Okay, I'm not, this is absolutely the case. They definitely did not need my help with regards to the theory. Those disputes were already going on. So what I had decided to do, because the theory did not need my help, I was arguing the theory with various people, but um, people like Jeremy Gold and others were arguing in the Society of Actuaries, American Academy of Actuaries, in actuarial standards of practice, it was going all over the place, especially with practice. They did not need my support. So I did support, um, but they didn't need it. Where I decided to throw in with the blogging and on the actual outpost was to compile the practical aspects of what was coming out of from the mismeasurement of these promises that it encouraged all sorts of bad practices. And so one of them being, of course, pension obligation bonds by setting a valuation rate that I thought was much too high and therefore coming up with this fake arbitrage and pension obligation bonds. So if you have an interest rate on the liability of 8% and then you can issue a bond at 4%, you get this fake arbitrage that you're like, oh, okay, now we've got a guaranteed profit of 4 percentage points. Uh, okay, but now what you've done is actually increase the leverage in the system and you can actually make things work. And what actually happens, in theory, actually, it should work great and make things better. But in practicality, the kind of systems where you're going to issue a very large pension obligation bonds tends to be those where they deliberately underfund the pensions and it just encourages them to be behave even more, even worse in terms of under contributions and even riskier asset portfolios and more and more leverage so that when there is a disaster, it gets even worse. So um, that's one kind of bad behavior. There are other bad behaviors such as spiking, such as just over promising in the pensions in general, uh, cost of living adjustments, automatic cost of living adjustments. Um, and so I started compiling these back in September 2008 on the actual outpost. Um, it started in a thread called Public Plans in Trouble on September 6, 2008. Now, the actual outpost is no more the original one. Uh, it died in 2020. Um, and I'm just going to read this because I archived these threads for my own purposes. Uh, I, I wrote, I'm opening this thread so we can document various public pension plans that hit the Rocky Shoals. And the first one I put in there was on Cobb County, Georgia, because I used to live there when I was a kid and it was their underfunded pension plan. Um, so it was underfunded by about 40%. And I actually like how they do that, say underfunded by 40%, rather than saying having a funded ratio of 60%. 
Um, though I do see when you go down the industry standard for public employee pensions is a funding rate of 80%. And there's my 80% funding ratio myth. Haha. <laughs> well, I got into that later. And, um, and then the very next post was San Diego retirement. So what happened is over the years, I started that post and, um, I have a whole bunch of threads actually, uh, once I got to, I think over a thousand posts in that thread, people said, you know, you really should start a new thread and public plans in trouble part two. I'm going to open that. Uh, I started that in January 2010, and then after that, I started each new thread on basically January 1st of each new year, and so that continued into 2020. Um, and so now I have my actuarial news site. I haven't been updating it recently, but I should be getting back into that soon. But there hasn't been a lot of public pension news lately, but that's okay. As I said, these things evolve over time. Um, the way they fail, you can see it coming from a long ways away. In 2015, so this took several years that there's been disputes back and forth. I was building up my own, <laughs> my own, uh, series of evidence of these are all the bad things that are happening. Meredith Whitney came out with her own little uh, uh, prediction that was very, very premature about um, all of these plans going bankrupt, which of course they did not because she was coming from her own place of experience of how corporate bonds, corporations go bankrupt, which is not how municipalities go bankrupt. It is definitely not how public pensions go bankrupt. What's interesting is uh, John Burry, who is one of the pension bloggers and not only public pensions, but definitely multi-employer plan um, pensions. And uh, those, that's interesting. I've been keeping up with what he's been doing, but he just posted about having potentially a blog hiatus just because there's not been a lot of news going on. And I've noticed the same. We're kind of, it's kind of quiet right now. Uh, the fiscal year, so most public plans run, have a fiscal year that run from June 30th to June 30th, but it does take time and it's summer. You know, a lot of times I don't actually see the reporting on the results until the beginning of September, just going to say a lot of this stuff moves very slowly. But the thing that I'm really waiting for is for the actuarial standard of practice number four that did get updated, did get uh, accepted. It will not go into effect. This is the one where they want an alternative valuation with this kind of risk-free valuation. Uh, and this will go into effect February, 2023. And that means valuations after that date will include that. Uh, so there will be a lag. Uh, the reports that occur before that effective date will not necessarily, I mean, of course, actuaries are, can include it before that ASOP goes into effect. But, you know, a lot of them will not include it unless they absolutely have to. Uh, and then they have to come up with, and I, I think there will be some standard language that will be developed around that. 
There had been a lot of disputes uh, from various pension actuaries, not only public pension actuaries, of having to explain what is this number. Well, you know, other actuaries have had to deal with the distinction between statutory reserves and gap reserves for other products, especially in life and annuities. We've been able to deal with it, so figure it out. We can help you, um, but I'm sure they will come up with something and they had better not, and they know they won't, um, they had better not come up with, oh, this is if everybody retires at the same time. They know it's not that. Um, they will better not say, though, well, this is assuming that the government can go out of business because it's not that either. This is not a matter of going concern versus some kind of closed block entity valuation. Um, this is indicating that, yeah, when we did this valuation at 8%, at 7.5%, and 7%, etc., we implicitly have a taxpayer or bondholder put in there, which by which we mean that if the assets don't perform at what we assumed, we're assuming we can get more cash to cover that shortfall from taxpayers or from the bondholders by defaulting on them. And, you know, they generally don't make it explicit. I was saying all this time, I'm just fine with saying, okay, you get to, you get to value this at a much higher than risk-free rate, but then the difference between there's some kind of embedded option in there that maybe you won't fulfill your promises. Back in 2015, when we had this public, <laughs> when we had this public hearing, there was a uh, here. I mean, I'm sorry. There was a piece in the New York Times by Mary Williams Walsh, titled "Bad Math and a Coming Pension Public Pension Crisis," and it starts uh, talking about Jim Palermo, who is someone I have uh, written with uh, about Illinois, the small. Uh, police and fire pensions that were over Illinois. And there had been an actuary who had been doing various small plan valuations over the years using a very strange mortality assumption. And I'm going to read from this 2015 article. So when Jim Palermo was serving as a trustee of the village of LaGrange, Illinois, he noticed something peculiar about the local police officers and firefighters. They were not going to live as long as might be expected, at least according to pension tables. After Mr. Palermo dug into the numbers, he found that the actuary, the person who advises pension plan trustees about how much money to set aside, was using a mortality table from 1971 that showed LaGrange's roughly 100 police officers and firefighters were expected to die on average before reaching 75 compared with 79 under a more recent table. Um, and yes, I had emailed uh, Mr. Palermo about this and how likely this was. And it's no, it's not very likely at all. 
uh, firefighters and police officers and the Society of Actuaries has done experience studies based off of real plans really do not die that much earlier than the general population. Um, it's no. <laughs> uh, public employees don't. Um, and in this, this is one of my, I think this is my sole New York Times quote. I show up in this and it's from a letter I had written with regards to the standards or rather lack of standards that we had surrounding assumptions in valuation. Actuaries make a juicy target, said Mary Pat Campbell, and actuary responded to the board's call for comments. She expressed concern that elected officials were using actuaries to lend respectability to questionable behavior like funding pensions with borrowed money, picking risky investments, and enacting benefit improvements based on lowballed costs. And that's my concern. Now with the change in actuarial standards, hopefully we're not going to be the ones left holding the bag. Um, we are, we actuaries are a convenient target to blame because we're a very small profession. There's only a few tens of thousands of us in the U.S. compared to how many politicians and how many public employees in the public employee unions. It's very easy to point to the actuaries and say, they told us, they told us this would be enough money. Um, no, no. We, and actually, the actuaries are generally not the ones who set the assumptions. We're definitely not the ones who set the discount rate. It's usually the politicians who set the discount rate. That was one of the many things I discovered over the years in investigating public pensions. Uh, so it was very interesting over the years. Um, you have to be very patient. And that's one of the problems with Meredith Whitney and some of the other people coming from faster moving business uh, to quote musically from a favorite kitty song that I had, have patience, have patience. Don't be in such a hurry when you get impatient you only start to worry remember remember that god is patient too and think of all the times when others have to wait for you yeah that's that was from the music machine which is actually a catholic kids uh record from when i was a little kid about the fruits of the holy spirit and you have to be very patient when watching trends for public pensions and usually for mortality trends as well. So that's how I operate. I'm very patient and I have to build up these things over long periods of time. While my Substack has only been around since 2020, my personal blog, stump.marypat.org, has been around since 2014. And as I said, I have been watching basically public pension news since September 2008 and building up that body of what's been going on. And I know there are people who have been around longer doing it for longer. Uh, when you watch these trends, it you have to build it up over a long period of time to really get a handle on how this works. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. See y'all soon.